Welcome to the AI and Big Data Expo here at the Rye in Amsterdam and to the first of three special episodes of the C-Suite podcast that we're producing in partnership with Xfluency, the AI-driven translation and localization system. We've put together a stellar lineup of guests from this year's speakers and we're going to be interviewing them from the Xfluency stand. We'll get their thoughts on the topics dominating the expo, such as enterprise AI, machine learning, ethical AI, deep learning, data ecosystems, and NLP. I'm your host, Graham Barrett, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, I'm here now with Gail Anders, who's the Global Business Continuity Program Manager at Netflix. Gail, nice to meet you. It's great to see you, Graham. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for stopping by and speaking to us for the podcast. And you're giving a presentation here at the AI and Big Data Expo about business continuity at Netflix, which is fascinating. But just go back a step. I wonder if you could give us an insight maybe into the culture at Netflix. So the first thing I would say is that if anybody's interested in the culture at Netflix, it's open source. You can find it on the internet and you can read the entire memo, which is uh, it's a little bit lengthy, but it goes through the things. But the key components that we pull from that uh, memo is freedom and responsibility. Now, this is a unique way of you know, leadership and management of individuals, you know, across the company, but you have as any, anybody in the company has the freedom to do anything they wish, as long as it's in the best interest of the company. And then you also have the responsibility to own those decisions though, right? So if you make a decision and yeah, it may have been in the best interest of the company, but it didn't work out too well, you got to own that. Uh, and so having that freedom of responsibility gives us a lot of flexibility to make very quick decisions, uh, to synergize with cross-functional teams and produce or support the different products that we support. The other piece of that is farming for dissent. And this is a unique one for me because uh, I did a little bit of time in the Marine Corps, so I love getting feedback and I love giving feedback. But at Netflix, farming for dissent is literally, hey, I just did a presentation or I just did a project or whatever I, I just did. Hey, what are, what's my feedback? And it's not like, hey, yeah, good job, and you can change one or two things. Like, no, that was the worst thing we've ever seen in our lives, and you should probably <laughs> never do that again. Like, the feedback is very direct, and uh, it's but it's purposeful and meaningful to make sure that you're you're constantly getting better, right? So that's another one. And then uh, the last one I'll speak to is guardrails, not gateways. Now, what we mean by that is, you know, if you can think of like a military organization or any other really rigid, structured company organization. When you want to do something, you usually got to talk to your boss, who's got to talk to his boss or her boss, and then yada, yada, all the way up, right? Um, where it, it, it's guardrails, not gateways. So if I wanted to have access, to, I have access to every employee at Netflix. So if I need to talk to somebody to get information to help me in my efforts or my initiatives, I can go do that. I don't have to ask for permission. I don't have to you know, play any really boring political games or anything like that. I can just go get the information I need, you know, and there's just no issues. There's no re repercussions of any of that stuff. And let's dig down into business continuity a little bit more because that's the presentation you're going to be delivering here at the Expo. So what makes it different at Netflix than other companies? Yeah, so a traditional business continuity program uh, would usually have one business continuity person for every 2,000 employees. At Netflix, there's only two people. It's myself and TJ Mead. I do the business side and TJ does the technology side of things in relation to a continuity. But what we've done is, if we tried to do a traditional model at Netflix, we probably wouldn't work there anymore because the culture is just way too fast and way too dynamic. So we took all the core requirements or outcomes of each step of a traditional program and we've built this quantitative process of basically knowing what the current health of the organization is. So if you're a leader and you own 200 things, we're gonna give you a scorecard for each one of these assets and you're gonna know real time, like what are the actual continuity gaps for every asset you're responsible for. That's a big difference right there because a traditional program usually says, hey, we wrote three plans this month or we did one tabletop exercise this quarter. 
that doesn't really tell you what the current state is, right? Another key component of our program is the fact that, let's say I hit you for, uh, you didn't have response documentation, right? Well, I'm not going to punish you with a bad score for 12 months. No, as soon as you and your team create the appropriate documentation, you simply notify us, we reflect your score, so anybody at the company can see the current health and the, you know have a clear understanding of the continuity gaps uh, for everything they're responsible for. And so, let's go back a step. What were the objectives then when you started this continuity program? What, what were you trying to get out of it? So, Enterprise Continuity existed basically as a result of COVID, right? So, okay. COVID happens, Netflix is trying to figure out how, to, how, do, we, you know, how do we work from home, and you know, just like every other company was going through those same challenges at the time. So the continuity comes in and we were primarily focused on just dealing with COVID and making the workforce more resilient. Uh, and that has since evolved into now we are connecting the business to the technology at Netflix to make sure that everybody has a clear understanding that, yeah, this widget you built, hey, it's great. But if it breaks, like this business function cannot operate. So we provide that awareness in that context so that leaders understand what, what is the risk involved with whatever they're responsible for. And what about measurement? How do you chart and measure the success or otherwise of this program? Yeah, so the great thing is, is that you know, we're relatively a new team at Netflix, but uh, we're just now beginning our reassessments, right? So everything that we've been doing for the last two years, we're now doing reassessments and we're being able to identify change behaviors. So the scores are going up in some cases, the scores are going down in some cases. Now that could be because there's a change in leadership, a change in the product requirements or whatever that may be. It's not always a bad thing when your score goes down, we want to capture that context so that everybody has a clear understanding. It's not that the team is jacked up and they're failing, right? <laughs> it's just that, hey, listen, this is no longer a requirement, so yeah. it's just a thing. Um, so it's a, an ever-evolving picture, is that, is that what you're saying? It is, yes. Yeah. And so you can see what was the score last year, what's the score this year. If it's different, we, we highlight that context and we can provide you with that information so that you understand, hey, are we trending in the right direction? Are we changing the behaviors? Are we making sure that everybody understands like what actually does it mean to be responsible for an asset? Yeah, yeah, sure. And how else could your work be improved? I mean, could we're here at the AI and big data experts as I said, we're talking about AI all day. Could AI help you in your work? 100%. So a big part of business continuity is plans and testing uh, and, and uh, right, the documentation of the plans and then testing and evaluating those, uh, the plans to make sure they're gonna actually survive contact with whatever the disruption is. I spend a lot of time drafting scenarios and creating scenarios. And the thing is, is like I work with engineering teams one day, I might be on the studio side one other day, and I might be with the finance team on another day. And if we're organizing all these different tabletop exercises and these evaluations, it's very challenging to create unique scenarios for each individual team. So where I believe AI could help us out, absolutely, it's like, hey, I have a finance, I give you know, whatever I need, whatever I need to input to the AI, but then it spits back the entire scenario and the entire runbook for the tabletop exercise. And now I can evaluate and I can test uh, multiple departments in a very short period of time. Okay, I just look into the future now. So what are your priorities in the near future for this program? How do you hope that it develops and continues to improve Netflix's, well, the word you use, resilience? Yes, so Netflix is obviously, we're doing live now. We're going into games. Uh, we have, you know, we're more acquiring more content and licensing and things of that nature. So we're, but at the end of the day, we are a technology company that does entertainment, and we wanted to make sure that regardless of what happens, the customer is always able to watch whatever content they want and discover new content. So that's the goal, and the continuity program is currently built to make sure that leaders and the, uh, the subject matter experts for those different services and applications, we can do that regardless of the types of disruptions that may impact us as a company. And how confident are you in the success of that program? I'm very confident. Yeah. I, I, listen, I love it. I believe it. Uh, the company sees value in what we're doing, and therefore, you know, I feel that, like, you know, my time is worth spent, uh, well spent at the company. 
So I love it. So yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Listen, thanks so much for stopping by. Best of luck with your presentation later today. Gail Anders, lovely to meet you. Hey, awesome. Thank you so much, Graham. I'm here with Mahmoud Yassin, Senior Data Manager at Booking.com. Very nice to see you. Hello. Hi. <laughs> now, I just saw you uh, just, just down the way there. You've given a presentation into implementing data lineage. Can you start by just giving us an overview of that term and what it means for your business? I know it's a bit uh, confusing name, uh, but it's really an important uh, capability. Uh, and basically what it means is uh, it's the art of traceability of data. So how you can identify a specific piece of data that you have in your organization by spotting the origin of it and where it did it go and what happened in between. So mm -hmm. that's ba basically what data lineage uh, means. And why is it important to trace these data footprints? What, what can that provide to the business? Yeah, it has great potentials because it can be very uh, useful for you to understand not just the current uh, way of doing data. So imagine that uh, there is a process that does a certain calculation in order to calculate your net profit. And this equation has a problem on it, right? Because you have used the wrong, let's say, attribute to calculate it. How would you know that? So if you have a possibility to track and trace how the main elements that form this formula came from that can be very useful uh, it can also be very useful in uh, doing uh, migrations or modernizing the data so the trend nowadays is moving to a cloud and you most of the organization have a big let's say bulky old-fashioned kind of data and data lineage can help you to uh, slice and dice the data that you currently have in order to have a proper strategy to do the migration to the public cloud so that can be also very useful among many other use cases uh, that, uh, that that are there as well yeah, and how difficult is this within an organization as big as Booking.com? Yeah, very important question. Uh, our uh, footprint from data point of view is huge. So we, on a daily basis, uh, we have to deal with terabytes of data coming from the logs, from our uh, website and app and so on. So it's really huge and um, there's not much maturity from technology point of view in the market. So you have to adapt and you have to have the flexibility to integrate multiple technologies in order to reach the goal of having an enterprise data lineage and that can be costly but this is uh, the situation as we as, uh, as we have and one of the suggestions that I gave today in the presentation is to support this by a backbone kind of architecture called the meta lake or the metadata lake where you can store different types of metadata for the boosting up the data lineage initiative at scale at your company and what do you I mean you've alluded to some of it there but what do you see as best practice in implementing data lineage? Yeah, so best practices um, comes, uh, or my suggestion would be to backbone it with a, an architecture, let's say, that can or able to store different types of metadata because metadata is the key to unlock your lineage uh, initiatives. So uh, try to think of how you get the business metadata, operational metadata, social and technical metadata put them together in the metadata lake and then try to fit them together and try to find a way to traverse between them and that can be enabler for you to do your data lineage. So the best practice is to support it by a solid architecture and don't just depend on one technology that and aim that it will do everything for you because this doesn't exist. There we have a lot of technologies in most of our organizations and there is no single tool that can have like the silver bullet to do that. So that's the data side of things and obviously at this conference we're also talking about AI. How much of an impact is that having at Booking.com? Yeah, so uh, AI actually I can say it's the heart of what we do at Booking.com. Not just nowadays but since the beginning because uh, we uh, tailor our experiences anyway to uh, the traveler or the person who use our service already uh, using a lot of machine learning. So we're crazy about that and 
every single product team has a machine learning or an AI engineer next to it try to utilize that and you see it very reflective that you know when you go to our website or use our services I can guarantee that you and your colleague will have a different experience based on your history your search history your different parameters that we apply and it's all powered by machine learning and AI. And moving forward, what do you see as the most exciting use cases for AI within Booking.com? Yeah, we have one already. So uh, we recently uh, published uh, what we call the AI Trip Planner. So it's really uh, the usage of OpenAI and the language models in order to offer a different way to interact with our uh, solutions. So basically, you open a chat and you just naturally chat with, hey, I want to go to somewhere sunny uh, in that period, in this month with those people. And then it's really like conversation that you'll have with the computer, suggest you stuff, and we've built a deep integration between these models and our models, so you have a seamless experience at the end at the customer. So it's quite uh, impressive, and we are piloting with it, and soon will be released for everyone, so can't wait for everyone to try it. Okay, that's brilliant. So where are you piloting it at the moment? It's currently in the States. Yeah. And so that gives you, it's not just about the hotel then, I guess it's about the whole experience of the holiday, would that Yeah, be so fair? it's the entire thing. So uh, yeah. we uh, deeply integrated it with all the servers that we have, and that's why if you get to try it, you will see that seamless experience. You can do complete everything from the th from the same window, and then without going and searching for filters and trying to find yourself. And you know, so we think it's another way that can get our service closer to the people based on AI and its potentials. Well, we very much look forward to that coming across to Europe, yes. so we can all start planning our <laughs> sure. trips uh, with too. AI. Yeah, <laughs> Mahmoud Yassin, thanks yeah, so much for your time off. today. Appreciate it. Joining me now is Yaramir Jawa, CTO of Xfluency. Lovely to see you here at the conference. Thank you for having me. Why did Xfluency decide, you know, you've got your stand here, we're on your stand. Why did you decide to sponsor and attend this event? Uh, it was a natural decision for us since we are into um, AI models and large language models, we are in the translation domain. Uh, then it was an obvious uh, choice for us to attend this AI slash big data event uh, because like everyone is talking about AI now, but uh, we really are here to uh, 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 listen to talk to partner up with companies because we believe that our solution that uh, is AI uh, actually that the touches uh, uh, the, the translation and the language <laughs> is perfect uh, and tailor-made for for a lot of companies here now the messaging on your stand talks about HI hybrid intelligence yeah. rather than AI what's the distinction there yeah I agree it's a bit of provocative to inspire discussions HI uh, stands for hybrid intelligence and that's a great definition of uh, our, our solution that we are not yet another artificial solution uh, marketing <laughs> uh, 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 like, like surface only, touching the only surface kind of solution. We are actually have the concept uh, that we started in 2018 and we developed the concept since then. It mm, goes through technology uh, to all the way up to the human level where we we have built communities around our concept and this hybrid stands for community members that do the data validation in order to create immutable data uh, in order somehow um, to, to provide a way that the data speaks for themselves um, in, and it's reflecting the reputation and reputation is written on the blockchain. So it's a perfect combination uh, of a union between a machine and a human. So obviously, clearly you're trying to share some of this messaging at the conference here today and to talk to other companies. 
what are your other key objectives? As I said, uh, we are here to partner. Uh, we are here to understand uh, more about the problems that companies facing uh, right now. Uh, everybody is uh, so excited with AI and uh, new um, both opportunities and the challenges that uh, uh, were discovered by some of people in late November, uh, maybe December last year. While of course the technology is much older than that, so uh, we want to uh, engage people in understanding more, uh, also to, to 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 make them realize there are not only opportunities but also challenges and the risks uh, uh, related to implementation. And uh, if we can, we want to help companies to implement LLMs, in, implement AI in their organization in the right way. And you're going to be busy at the conference, aren't you? Because you're giving your own presentation about what you've just True. been speaking about, about LLMs. What yeah. are some of the key points you're looking to make in that presentation? So um, LLMs brings you a lot of opportunities, as I said, uh, is they can easily generate content for you. Uh, they can uh, summarize that. Um, they can basically save you a lot of time. But at the same time, you know, this opportunity creates a lot of risk. Like uh, you, for example, can lose totally control over your data and uh, you uh, expose your sensitive private corporate data to uh, 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 your competition potentially. <laughs> so there is a lot of uh, things you need to be careful about and uh, the industry will realize that sooner or later we are here to help you realize it sooner rather than later. And our custom-made tailored solution, we can create a, a specific LLM, specific model for you, and it's totally effortless. You would be doing the translation the way you are used to do the translation. It's just that the model will be built behind the stages for you, so it's an effortless way to make a first step into AI, into content generation, but the huge difference would be that this would be your data you're talking to. You would be uh, doing this stuff exactly the same way like you would be chatting with ChatGPT, but uh, the engine would be uh, 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 your data specific. You would be talking to your documents, you would get uh, insight, summarization on your documents, you would get uh, uh, rid of this hallucination. We are in Amsterdam today, but uh, hallucination is, <laughs> in, in terms of AI, is not really the thing that you want to mm, go forward with in a corporate level. Yeah, interesting stuff. And what are some of the key benefits then? What are some of the live use cases? Maybe you can share those with us. Yeah, sure. For example, personalized marketing. Uh, in case of LLM, which is built on your data, that's actually your model, that's your mm, specific model, so that you could use these data to create a localized marketing campaigns that would improve customer engagement. The other example would be where there is a model that sleeps, that never sleeps, that it works 24 by 7. So for automation and training and reacting to events that could actually create a content, create notification while you sleep. Fascinating stuff. I wish you all the best for the conference here today and tomorrow. Yaramir, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Sabir Majumda, Model Validator, Innovation and Projects, ABN Amro Bank. Sabir, it's really nice to see you today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you've just featured on a panel talking about ethics, responsibility and governance in AI. That's quite a big topic. What were the main talking points? Yeah, the, the panel was talking about how do we safely scale AI across organizations, mainly focusing on ethics, governance, responsibility, accountability, 
basically how can we govern AI without stifling innovation too much. Yeah, and how was that received and what were the main points that you personally made? Yeah, so the main points we discussed were can we balance accuracy and explainability or are there trade-offs? Uh, and what are the trade-offs between bias, fairness and also accuracy? How do we make models more accountable, yeah. more fair? Yeah, no, it's a fascinating area. I mean, how does this bias happen in the first place? What are some of the root causes? Most cases, biases come from AI is trained on historical data. So history has its own prejudices, own biases, but our morality and moral compass of society is changing. So we, have a, we are mimicking past behavior, which is not acceptable anymore. So that needs to be changed. So we need to be carefully inventing the future, not just mimicking the past behavior. Okay. And another source uh, which bias comes from is data scientists who are building. They, they are taking decisions on data processing, uh, data sampling, or methodology choice evaluating models. So consciously or subconsciously, they are, the biases they have is creeping into the algorithms. What are some of the steps we can take to eliminate this bias then? What work are you undertaking to do that? Yeah, it depends on the sources of the bias, where the bias is coming from. So if we see the data is not representative enough of the whole population, then it's important to have diverse set of data to include all different demographies of the population on which the model is going to be used for. Right? And have diversity in data science teams so that the biases are easy to spot and easy to mitigate. What are some of the, uh, you know, give us some examples of the bias that, that can occur in the data. Uh, for example, biases against women, bias for gender, age, different ethnicities. For example, I work in a bank and we make use models to determine if to give loan to someone or not. Because in history, women had lower income and higher chances of default if you train on the same data. Even today, our models could be biased against women. And as someone who works in AI, what for you personally, what are some of the most exciting use cases that you can see? Yeah, I see uh, a lot of exciting use cases in healthcare and climate change mitigation. Okay. Because now we are in an era of huge data sets available and enhanced image uh, processing mechanisms. Right? So now we can leverage all this technology and make use to solve interesting problems in climate change. You know, because that's one of the probably the biggest problem we are encountering at the minute. So if we can use AI as a force for good, then obviously that's that's excellent. But as our dear Hollywood has taught us, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. So we are in, in the time where we can shape the future of AI yeah, yeah. because it comes with huge responsibility as well. Well, that's a very good point. So how do we manage that? I mean, how do you manage the governance of AI? What needs to be done? So there are regulations coming, one is AI Act, uh, and all uh, member states in EU will have to comply with that. That's a very welcome step. More granular steps, what we need will come once it goes into action. So for example, third party auditing will be required. We have a lot of AI developers and data scientists now budding, but do we have enough skilled AI auditors? We don't know, but I, I look forward to see where this field of auditing goes in future. Are you worried at all that the AI acts will become out of date very quickly because these technologies are accelerating so quickly? Exactly. Technology moves much faster than regulation and yeah. law, but lawmakers have to be on their toes as much as the technology makers. That's the only way. Well, look, I hope you have a great conference. Sabir Majumda, thanks so much for joining me Thank here you. today. Thank you. It was enjoyable talking to you.
Okay, I'm here with Michael Borelli, Director of AI and Partners. Nice to see you, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you start by giving us an introduction to AI and Partners? What do you guys do? Sure. AI and Partners is a professional services firm for companies subject to the EU AI Act. Started in 2021, it's an archetype of professional services firm geared to help companies achieve regulatory excellence. Now, as we know, this technology is accelerating so quickly. So you, you just mentioned the, the EU Act there. Is that regulation sufficient or is it going to quickly become outdated? What, what do you think? Very interesting question. We probably don't have time for it. Innovation, generally speaking, outpaces regulation, but I think it's, it's necessary to catch, catch the pace of innovation at the moment. As you touched on there, it's a risk-based horizontal approach to regulation of AI and it's based on the risk of an AI system. Other jurisdictions have different approaches, but the EU have set the, set the precedent with this. And is it going to be difficult, you speak with companies who are trying to implement these new measures, is it going to be difficult for them to do that or is that going to be relatively straightforward? Well, it depends on the scale, nature, complexity of the business and their level of maturity, but I think uh, the education piece and the literacy piece we've seen is massive, as with all technological changes. I speak with experience from previous fintech and crypto waves. But I think the AI one is going to be interesting. I think we world leaders such as Elon Musk um, and Bill Gates talking about it has to be considered a whole different spectrum and um, we're entering a new paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've been very busy at the conference here today. You gave the opening remarks on the, uh, the Enterprise AI track, didn't you? And you've been on speaking on various sessions. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing. It's been busy, but the team have enabled this to happen. Uh, the team have been absolutely exceptional. Um, you know, the, the opening remarks were based on where we see um, intelligence's ability to adapt. So I think that was the key message from that. Uh, the sessions were, we had great panelists. We had uh, philosophers and risk management personnel from banks giving real insight on how to scale uh, AI and the, of interest was the ethics piece and how frameworks can be invented in banks. But it, there's so much to talk about, it's difficult to cover everything. Yeah, I find the ethics side of this really interesting. So you've just been on those sessions. Where do you think we are now? Are we in a good place when it comes to ethics and AI? Well, yes and no. Yes, we are because I think there's a recognition that is to be, it's important. No, there seems to be um, separation of what it means to be ethical and if it's part of responsible AI or completely separate. So I think even at a definitional uh, level, there's still a lot of ambiguity there that needs to be determined. Yeah, sure. Now, of course, as well as the things we're worried about in, in terms of AI, there are the exciting and transformative things that are going to happen with AI. What are you particularly excited about? Well, I speak with prejudice. I'm excited about the opportunities in financial services and from compliance, whether it's everything from fraud detection to trade surveillance to automation of KYC and onboarding processes. I think I see a lot of pain points there, but I think it's going to open up a huge world, world of opportunities for our for the next generation and the generation after that, you know, and I think we can actually leave the future generations with the world in a better place than we actually came into. And how can these companies embrace these opportunities then? What advice would you have for them? Go, I'll go back to the quote from Einstein, intelligence is the ability to change. Um, and I think just investing in change, adapt and driving the culture to change, not being scared of change, actually taking Maybe almost the, uh, um, from the entrepreneur's playbook, every day is a new day to start something new. What you've done yesterday is probably not sufficient for tomorrow, but use that to your advantage and do not let it hamper you. 
Talking specifically about financial services that you mentioned there, what are the most exciting things that could develop in that area in terms of AI? There was actually a report released yesterday by the Association of Financial Markets in Europe and they think how it augments the compliance function. To some, may not be as uh, exotic, but I think the ability to equip new compliance officers in the space of the tools to do things that were unimaginable, especially for some of the frustrations I had when I was doing FSA regulated firms, I think is very exciting. Um, that's all I can really say, really. I think there's a lot of opportunities in front office space and the search for alpha, but I think um, being enabling people to be more effective, because that in releases so much more time and energy to do value-added activities for the business. Yeah. Well, listen, good luck for the rest of the time here at the conference. I know you delivered those opening remarks. You've got to deliver the closing remarks as well. So best of luck with that. Michael Borelli, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Joris Krieger, AI and Ethics Specialist at the Volksbank. Nice to see you here at the conference. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, you're giving a presentation on responsible AI, aren't you? What do you see as the most exciting use cases in AI banking at the moment? Well, in banking, I think uh, banking traditionally has been a very uh, data-heavy industry. So I think artificial intelligence holds a lot of promise for banking. And uh, both the front, uh, front end and the back office part, uh, AI can revolutionize the way banking is being done. Um, in terms of marketing, but also risk management, compliance, these sorts of aspects, I think um, um, artificial intelligence can have a tremendous impact, and we're already seeing that today, so that's, I think, quite exciting. Now, obviously, there's, there's so much innovation with AI, but it's all about responsible AI, isn't it? What does that look like from a banking perspective? I think um, we, we can do a lot with the technology, um, and also, legally, you could say some things are allowed where perhaps from an ethical perspective you might say, um, well, is that actually desirable? And that's what responsible AI is all about. It's about asking yourself that question, uh, is it actually desirable, even though it's possible and it is allowed? Um, and responsible AI is all about making sure that the systems you develop and deploy are aligned with human values, you could say. Things we think are important and uh, impact as a bank that we want to have on, on society in a, in a positive sense. So responsible AI means uh, aligning your AI systems, but also the structures and processes of developing and deploying them with these human values. And what do you see as the potential risks then that maybe IA, AI could bring to the banking sector? Yeah, there are some very well-known risks, um, uh, for example, when it comes to discrimination or fairness issues. Um, AI is basically uh, automating the status quo, you could say, and that doesn't work out uh, equally well for everyone. Um, so you have the potential for bias there, uh, negatively impacting people when, for example, it comes to credit scoring or mortgage approval. But you also have the problem that these systems become increasingly more complex. and. Uh, this explainability issue, can we still understand the reasoning of an artificial intelligence? Um, can we still explain how it came to its decision? That's, I think, uh, a very important risk as well. Um, and a third one, which I think we need to tackle uh, both um, as, as a bank, but also perhaps for AI in general, is the accountability issue, where uh, because these systems are so autonomous, we cannot actually locate responsibility to the, the programmer, the team, uh, the business uh, owner. So that's another challenge I think we need to, uh, we need to solve. Yeah, it sounds hugely co complex. 
and obviously the risks are changing by the day. It's not as if there's one risk today that will be the same next year or you know, further into the future. So how can these risks be mitigated? What do you do at Vol the Volksbank? We used to look at this problem as a technical problem, and I think that's a misunderstanding of the problem of responsible AI. Um, to think you can solve it with uh, more data, better technology, um, or to just train your data scientists and uh, assume that things will be okay. Uh, we learned that that was a, a misconception, and so uh, what needs to happen is a, a proper form of governance. Um, so you need to uh, align the structures and processes with the values you consider important for artificial intelligence. Um, and so at the Volksbank we've done just that. We've changed the development process. We have a new ethics team that is particularly looking into uh, the ethical aspects of our AI systems uh, throughout the life cycle of an AI system. That gives us some insight in the first place into uh, the way we address ethical aspects and it gives us the opportunity to change or correct wrong value decisions that have been made throughout the development process. You mentioned ethics, yeah. I mean, what does that look like from a, you know, from a business perspective? What, what, is an, what is an ethical business? What does that mean to you? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question, and I think that's, um, that's always a difficult question to answer. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, ethics is about justifying the principles that underlie your decisions. And you're standing here with a philosopher, so I could go on about this uh, for the entire afternoon, but I assume you want to get to the question of the business and the ethics part. So I get that. So if you are able to justify the principles of your decisions, then I think you need to have some form of governance in place. So when it comes to business ethics, uh, I think you, you need to be able to be held to account for the decisions that you've made as a, as a company, as an organization. And ideally, these decisions need to be somewhat uh, aligned with public values and with so, uh, social interests. And so that's what it means for, for the Volksbank to just uh, consider the societal impact, the ecological impact that we have, and to be able to come up with justifications for the decisions that we've made and to show that we care not just about the shareholders, but about uh, the customers, society, and our own employees as well. No, well, let's book a separate chat and we can have that yeah. philosophical discussion later. <laughs> a fireside chat. That's it, exactly <laughs> that. But for now, Joris Krieger, nice to meet you and thank you very much. Thank you. Joining me now is Fatima Assad Saeed, CEO of Abacus Consulting. Fatima, nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and thank you for the opportunity, Gran. Not at all. And you are giving a presentation about Pakistan as an innovative technology hub. The name of that session is Why Pakistan? So please tell me. Thank you very much. Uh, one, it's really exciting to be here at TechX uh, Amsterdam. And you can see the energy amongst all the participants and the sponsors and speakers as well. Um, and it is important for us to focus on collaboration, whether as an organization or an individual or even at the country level, because that's how the world is evolving, especially in the space of technology. Technology, I believe, is borderless and it connects individuals and nations and communities. And we cannot look um, to be independent. We have to look towards being collaborative and, and forging strong relationships and partnerships. And that is why that's the premise behind engagement between the European countries and with Pakistan as well. There are definite advantages as well. And it is a journey that must be given due attention from a strategic standpoint. What do you see as the key factors that has made Pakistan such a successful landscape for IT and technology? Uh, well, I believe the number one on my list would be the access to tech talent. 
Um, we are a nation of almost 240 million people. That's the fifth most populous country in the world. 30% are under the age of 30. So that's a, a massive uh, uh, talent pool that can be leveraged. Of course, it is our responsibility as the citizens of our country to create the jobs and create the opportunities as well. But that said, there are opportunities being created by virtue of technology um, uh, platforms that enable you to be sitting in Pakistan and connecting with all over the world. So one is, yes, access to tech talent. Um, there is much more that needs to be done. The second is the competitive advantage that Pakistan enjoys at this point in time. Unfortunately, our economics, our economy has taken a very bad, bad hit, whether it is political instability or whether it is the macroeconomic indicators. We are also reeling from the outcome of climate change because of the floods last year in Pakistan. But the good news is that we are forging forward and we're trying to get back on our feet and in, ensure that there is an opportunity. In every crisis, there is an opportunity. The idea is to connect uh, over there. The third is the government's own commitment towards uh, engagement with the tech industry, both at a domestic level and an international level. And there are various policies that have are either under discussion or have been approved and implemented or in the process of being implementing, which will also enable players in the tech industry to, to take uh, this particular mandate forward beyond the borders of Pakistan. Okay, so is that maybe one of the reasons for this successful collaboration between Europe and Pakistan that the government is involved? And how do you see that collaboration uh, getting stronger moving forward? Absolutely. I mean, by virtue of um, our presence over here, is it? Uh, of course, as an organization, and I'll talk a bit about the footprint of Abacus as well, the intent of associations both on the private sector as well as the government-owned uh, entities as well is a testament of the fact that the government of Pakistan has prioritized the technology industry as one of its mainstays in terms of enabling the economic uh, activity and also trying to get back on our feet um, after the last few years which have uh, been a bit you know, difficult. Um, you see engagement not only in Europe, we were in Jitex Africa a couple of months ago, there is another event, tech event coming up in Dubai um, later, um, uh, well actually next month, um, and various other forums and platforms and the government is pushing the private sector entities to represent. Even in the US, uh, tech crunch took place in California last week. So, you know, uh, it's not just the private sector companies stepping up, it's also the government saying, we've got this opportunity, we will sponsor you, we will subsidize, just go ahead and uh, um, connect with uh, potential stakeholders, with potential investors, and with potential organizations who are enabling that economic activity. Sure, no, I can see there's a great groundwork being laid for all this future innovation and future work. I'm also interested in your own personal journey to CEO of Abacus Consultant. 
and about any barriers that you had to overcome to reach that position? Well, I took uh, charge of this uh, role um, as well. The board nominated me as CEO two years ago in 2021. I have been associated with the professional services industry for almost 25 years now. Um, our legacy, uh, not only as Abacus, but my own journey has been through Coopers and Libran, um, as well as PricewaterhouseCoopers. And it's sort of intertwined uh, the journey of our organization and my own rise. Interestingly enough, I don't come from a technology background. My own discipline or my, in my I guess, a former professional life has been on the human resource side. So human capital management, change management, governance, more from an HR perspective. And um, I just grew into the role of a business leader by virtue of being appointed, being put on the board, I'm a member of the board as well. That gave me um, a great experience in terms of overseeing a diverse portfolio because if I link it up to where Abacus is, we are now 35 years of operation. We were established back in 1987. Um, though we started uh, from corporate finance and consulting, human resource, IT consulting, those are our initial days. Um, and then became part of Coopers and Lyburn and subsequently PwC. That was my mainstay. And then in 2003, when Servan's Oxley Act, uh, you know, the event that took place around that, PwC Consulting gets bought out by IBM. And in Pakistan, we were one of the few countries in the world that had the ability to decide whether to go independent or to be acquired. And it was a very difficult decision because it was a pivot. Uh, what it meant was we went from international to local, lost 50% of our clients, 60% of our people, one office, 60 people. And today, fast forward to 2023, where we are 4,500 people, 10 different businesses, predominantly technology and outsourcing. We have one of the largest BPOs, contact centers, as well as customer experience uh, setups. Um, as well as obviously the technology portfolio and digital transformation, cloud emerging technologies, etc. And of course the consulting is still very much there. The human capital element is extremely important and why it continues to be important, grammar is when you have digital transformation, you have to take the people along. You have to focus on, as business leaders, of reskilling and upskilling and preparing them for the change that will impact them at a personal as well as at a professional level. So right now, my challenge is to position Abacus for the next 35 years. But in that is not just our alliance partners, because we have 15 global leaders that we work with, whether it's SAP or Oracle or Google Cloud, uh, Mercer, etc. That's on the consulting side, human resource side. Um, but also, we have presence across 28 countries. And we work with our international member firms, which are headquartered in the UK. So my job is to make sure our delivery center of almost more than 4,000 people is running you know, very efficiently and effectively to cater and deliver across four continents. Yeah, no, it sounds like you've got all the tools in place for a very successful future. It's all so. about teamwork. Yeah. You have the right person in the right seat, you have good leaders at all levels, you can't go wrong. Fatima Assad Said, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank really you. appreciate your time and uh, good luck for the rest of the show. Thank you and a great opportunity as well and I wish you all the very best. 
I hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the 2023 AI and Big Data Expo. Thanks to all my guests for their time and insights and to Exfluency for hosting us on their stand and partnering with the podcast. If you've enjoyed these interviews and you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on LinkedIn and our other social media channels. All of the links can be found at csuitepodcast.com, where you can also catch up with our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.